Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sina Yanolo. I studied neuroscience and then bioengineering, graduating with a PhD from ETH Zurich in Switzerland. Currently, I'm working in the diagnostics industry. Today, I have science journalist David Robson with me to talk about his book, The Expectation Effect, a journey through the cutting-edge science of how our mindset shapes every facet of our lives. Melding neuroscience with narrative, David Robson takes readers on a deep dive into the many life zones the expectation effect permeates. We see how people who believe stress is beneficial become more creative when placed under strain. We see how associating aging with wisdom can add seven plus years to your life. People say seeing is believing, but over and over, Robson proves that the converse is truer. Believing is seeing. Welcome, David. Great to have you here. Yeah, I'm delighted. Thanks for having me. Um, This is a very interesting book, um, taking us through the science behind expectation effects and this prediction machine responsible for it in our brains. But before diving into the science, can you tell us what motivated you to write this book? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, as a science journalist writing for New Scientist and the BBC, like I'd obviously covered the placebo effect in medicine uh, quite a lot. So, you know, I was always fascinated by this fact that the brain can have these effects on the body um, that aren't just subjective. You know, uh, we know from studies of the placebo effect that it can actually do things like uh, changing. um, It can, uh, if you believe you're receiving a placebo painkiller, it can kind of trigger the release of endogenous opioids. So it's almost like the brain has its own inner pharmacy that the placebo effect can help help us to use. Um, So that was the first expectation effect I became fascinated in. And then I came across this concept of the nocebo effect, which is the opposite of the placebo effect, and it's less well known. But the nocebo effect is really like the, the dark twin, the it's um, the evil twin. It, it's really when you have expectations of illness or feeling sick, that's when you become sick through similar mechanisms to the placebo effect. And I actually experienced that myself um, 
when I um, was prescribed some antidepressants by my doctor. And she told me that uh, one of the side effects of these pills was um, kind of bad migraines. Um, she only said it was a possibility that I could experience those. But in the days afterwards, I really did suffer from some terrible headaches. And it was just a coincidence that at the same time, I was writing an article about the nocebo effect. And I looked up the um, the uh, clinical trials for the drugs I was taking. And I actually found that even with people taking placebo pills in these clinical trials, um, they also experienced these headaches, which suggests that actually that's coming from expectations rather than a chemical effect of the drug. Um, that's how we measure lots of nocebo effects is from looking at the side effects of people taking the innocuous pills. Um, what I found was that actually that realisation was really powerful in helping to relieve me of the pain. So I read that paper in the morning, went out for lunch, and by the afternoon, the pain had largely vanished because I'd been able to repraise the symptoms that I was feeling. And I stopped feeling so anxious about the headaches, and then they disappeared of their own accord. And that, for me, really showed how powerful expectation effects can be because the pain was real to me. You know, it wasn't imagined. And actually, we now know that, you know, when people have a nocebo headache or nocebo migraine, that you do actually see differences in things like the brain's uh, vasodilation. So we do know there's a physiological cause um, to this that comes from the expectations. Um, and that just really fascinated me so much that I kept on gathering more and more papers on the expectation effect. And around uh, uh, 2017 and 18, I came to realise that actually, we were now seeing research that took this out of medicine out of the kind of hospitals and doctor surgeries and into all areas of our lives. So things like the effects of sleep loss, our reactions to diet and exercise, even how we age, all seem to be shaped by our expectations. Um, and that just seems like such an important story to tell, that that was why I wanted to write this book that really charted this research and showed how we might be able to use it to improve our lives. Um, and thanks a lot for doing that. It really indeed is a very, very interesting book. And um, also it's um, maybe um, interesting for our listeners to know also all these anecdotes are also scattered throughout the book, which I found actually very nice to, to hear your individual experience alongside the science that actually underlies it. Um, uh, then I'm actually really um, wondering, let's start with the prediction machine, as you described, which underlies all of all of these effects. What does that mean? I mean, this is a really um, trendy, cutting edge theory in neuroscience, and it's got a lot of support behind it now, um, that the brain functions as a prediction machine. It's actually behind all kinds of processing. Um, so what does this mean? Well, essentially, uh, the brain is constantly trying to preempt what's going to happen in the future. And primarily the interest had been in what this means for sensory processing. Um, what became apparent um, through multiple experiments is that the brain is building these kinds of simulations of the world, and then it's adjusting those simulations based on the sensory data that's coming in. So what you're actually experiencing is this kind of simulation. Some neuroscientists almost say that we're having a controlled hallucination. It's the simulation that we're experiencing and it's controlled by the sensory data, whereas most of us see it the other way around. We assume that actually we're just seeing what's right in front of us, but it's not like that at all. It really is that um, that we're, the brain's predictions are driving what we perceive. That's, that's really efficient for lots of reasons. Um, one is that actually sensory data is inherently ambiguous and it, um, using our predictions based on experience and memory is actually just really helpful in 
um, helping us to make sense of the world and to actually kind of um, to it's actually very accurate um, an accurate form of perception. Um, but um, what's even more important is that actually this is helping then the brain to not only shape its perceptions but also shape the way the body is prepared for physical challenges. So the if the brain sees that you're going to kind of be facing a kind of dangerous predator or a competitor, then it's adapting your body for that threat. It's kind of changing your cardiovascular system, releasing hormones that are going to help you to deal with it in the best way possible. Um, similarly, if it predicts that you might be at risk of an illness, it's going to do things like um, changing the levels of inflammation within the body, which can help to protect it from different pathogens. So it's really fundamental, not just to our state of mind, but our state of body too. And um, you also mentioned in the book that, um, so as I also understand also from your um, explanation and how you describe it in the book is that we actually have an expectation and then the senses kind of feed in to sharpen it or um, change it in, in some way. And sometimes what also happens is that even if we see something, because it's so contrary to our expectation, we still do not accept what we see. Yeah, that's exactly it. So, I mean, I'd say in, you know, everyday life, you know, it's like so accurate, we don't really notice the errors very often. Although we do, you know, we've all had that situation where we've misheard a conversation. And what the we didn't, we what we think the person said was very different from what they actually said. Now, that's just one example of where our predictions have actually overridden the um, auditory information and shaped it in a way that wasn't true to real life. Um you know, this seems to be quite powerful and like it can actually cause kind of complete hallucinations even amongst healthy people. So there was one study that played uh, students some just white noise. It was completely meaningless, but the researchers had primed the participants to believe that they would hear um, Bing Crosby singing White Christmas in that uh, white noise. And actually 30% of the students did indeed hear uh, Bing Crosby singing White Christmas. That's their expectations causing the, they're building a simulation of that singing that's then shaping the way that sensory data is processed. Um, we see the same when people look at kind of um, white visual noise. So, you know, like um, uh, if um, people can remember TV before analog TV, the kind of um, untuned TV screen that was just very pixelated and grey. Um, when they uh, primed people to believe that they would see faces within this, uh, the people actually did report seeing faces. And what was remarkable was that when you scanned their brains while they reported seeing these faces, the activity looked really similar to when they actually saw real faces. So, you know, even neurologically, it was very difficult to tell the difference between um, what was an illusion and what was real. Um, so, yeah, it can be really powerful um, and it can explain all kinds of uh, kind of, you know, paranormal phenomena that we might um, have heard of. So when people see, uh, you know, when um, Notre Dame uh, went into flames, people claim to be able to see Jesus in the flames and the smoke. Um, and, you know, that seems to have come from this kind of predictive processing too. You do cite um, researcher Moshe Bar saying, we see what we predict, not what's out there. So indeed, then that's the, uh, that's the state of things. <laughs> right. And our predictions are often correct. So, you know, it's not a bad thing. But when they are wrong, they can be very wrong. Yeah. Yeah. 
So um, you already mentioned a bit about the, the medical um, uh, uses or let's say manifestations of the expectation effect in placebo and nocebo effects. So um, you also are very careful in, in highlighting that, yes, these effects are there, but, you know, you cannot also, you know, force or wish yourself away from a very serious illness and so on. But what are these uh, still, those significant effects of placebo and nocebo effects in, in medicine? Can we make use of it as, as individuals? Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right that, you know, this there's some kind of positive thinking literature that claims that, you know, you can cure yourself of serious illnesses like cancer just with positive thinking. Well, like there's absolutely no good reason to believe that that's possible. Um, but, you know, just because you can't, just because it doesn't work at the extremes doesn't mean that actually it can be very helpful, especially, I think, when complementing um, actual kind of um, traditional medicine, you know, when actually um, it can be used to improve people's uh, experiences in really profound ways. Um, I'd say the best researched uh, uses of the placebo effect are really for pain relief. Um, and that's partly because we do know that there's this very, um, very well documented now effect that when you receive a painkiller, it often a placebo painkiller, that often results in the release of the brain's own endogenous painkillers. So not just opioids, but also cannabinoids, for example, you know, these things that are really important for uh, reducing inflammation and reducing pain. Um, now, um, the problem with using this practically, even though we knew that that happened, was that placebos were thought to require deception. And uh, doctors can't ethically deceive a patient because then that would reduce the patient's trust in the medical profession. And, you know, there could be huge um, and terrible consequences from that. But what the researcher now really is looking at is whether we can actually just um, do away with the deceptive part of the placebo. And one of the most um, exciting ways to do that is the use of open label placebos. So people actually receive these jars of pills that clearly say placebo pills take two a day, you know, no deception there at all. But the researchers, I'm thinking of one particular study in Portugal, which was treating people with chronic pain. Um, they just they gave the uh, participants these pills, but they told them that um, that you know placebos can be effective. They explained a bit about the mind body connection and about how placebo painkillers can work. Um, and then they gave these uh, participants these pills and let them use them for um, a, a week. Uh, I can't remember if it was a week or a few weeks, but a significant amount of time. Um, and what they found was that actually compared to people um, on a waiting list who <coughs> were just receiving their usual treatment but didn't have the placebos, that there was actually a really significant, a clinically significant improvement in these participants' uh, pain uh, pain and the symptoms they're experiencing. So I think it was about a 30% reduction in the amount of uh, pain relief. Uh, in the amount of pain that they were experiencing, and that was over this prolonged period. So it was really actually working as well as you would expect of a you know real active drug, which is quite incredible. And then these researchers did a five-year follow-up, and they found that actually these participants, with that knowledge of the mind-body connection and how the mindset alone was able to reduce pain, they were still benefiting from this. So it was really had profoundly changed their lives and changed their symptoms. 
And um, when we think of the nocebo effects, you also suggest, for example, if you were experiencing a side effect of, um, of a medication or a therapy, you could just reframe this knowledge in thinking, okay, actually this means maybe this therapy is working for me. That is why I'm having a certain side effect. So, yeah. But I mean, I think that is really important too. Um, the study I um, am thinking of there is this one of, uh, children taking an immunotherapy for peanut allergies. Um, and, you know, this is a, almost like the principle of inoculation in that over a period of six months, the children take an increasing dose of the protein that causes the allergy. And the idea is that you're training the immune system so that it can um, tolerate the uh, protein without launching a full-blown allergic reaction, a dangerous allergic reaction. Um, we know that this does work, but lots of uh, patients drop out because they find it really unpleasant the kind of side effects they experience during that process uh, because the the small protein the small amount of protein does trigger an immune response that can be really uncomfortable you know uh, it can bring out them out in hives it can cause a kind of uncomfortable feeling in their mouths it can cause digestive problems um, and the researchers didn't tell the participants to kind of ignore those symptoms on the contrary they did have to monitor them to ensure that they you know, didn't develop into something that was so worrying they would have to actually go to see a doctor. Um, but they did just ask them if they could try to reframe the feelings. And they just told them that in the same way that if you're working your body, um, you know, your muscles are going to ache. Um, or, you know, if you're practicing a musical instrument, you know, your fingers, if you're playing guitar, they might kind of develop calluses. Well, actually, these um, symptoms that they were experiencing um, were just a sign that their immune system was responding to the therapy and was actually growing stronger. So rather than being seen as wholly negative, they saw it as something that was uncomfortable but necessary for their improvement. And these participants, over that six months, they experienced fewer side effects overall. So it did improve their comfort. But what's really amazing is that it also improved on some level the effectiveness of the treatment. So you saw in those participants and not in the control group that they actually showed higher levels of a kind of friendly antibody, uh, one that was helping to protect them from the allergic reaction. It was helping to kind of block that allergic reaction. So, you know, it was having a, a real um, difference, making a real difference to their physiology, as well as improving their subjective experience. And I think that's just a great sign of how changing expectations can be powerful um, in so many ways for patients. You know, we don't need to, for, to claim that the mind can cure cancer, uh, to believe that actually expectation effects are something really significant that doctors need to be considering and using in their day-to-day -day practice. Um, talking about that, I was also wondering the whole reframing which you actually come um, to um, discuss in all the various chapters when you discuss um, eating, exercise and so on. So um, can we also think of it similar to current, for example, psychotherapy, modern psychotherapy practices such as cognitive behavioral therapy or some, like, is it used in some other um, uh, medical treatments, so to say? Yeah, it is. I mean, I think this process is really borrowed from cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, in the, you know, like I've undergone CBT myself, and a lot of that is about kind of questioning your beliefs and then challenging them and actually trying to you know, investigate it almost scientifically and objectively to see if you can find evidence against these uh, potentially 
uh, damaging assumptions that you're making. And so that is very much what the uh, reframing process is doing. And actually, that is what these participants were doing in the study I just mentioned. You know, they weren't blindly denying what they were feeling, but they were just like reinterpreting the events and just questioning whether it was really as bad and as scary as they had once assumed. And like you say, that's really true of all of these expectation effects. Um, I, I like to think of it as being like, uh, you know, you could have positive thinking, which is just like this kind of unrealistic optimism. I don't think that's very useful at all, actually, because I think that's only going to lead to disappointment. But I think what when we're trying to apply the expectation effect, what we're trying to do is just to stop us being overly pessimistic and irrationally pessimistic. We're really trying to just bring ourselves up to this kind of level where we can think about situations a bit more objectively. And actually, it's just that process. It's that process of actually eliminating the overly negative expectations that can really be quite powerful in changing your life. What I found parallels to that is in the chapter when you discuss stress. So uh, how we perceive stress could affect how stress can affect us. And um, we can, for example, to kind of avoid or overcome the more detrimental aspects of stress we can just start by accepting it as a necessary part of overcoming a challenge, part of learning a new thing, or just as you know, one reframes this nocebo effects. Um, I also found that this approach is also similar to, um, for example, meditation practices where you have your have the thoughts or feelings that come to you, don't reject it. You say, okay, it's it's there. Starting from med- meditation, I was just wondering, you refer. Um, also reframing this expectation effects uh, as part of a toolbox of uh, various uh, tools that we have to deal with uh, challenges and stresses of life. So um, uh, how do you relate to these other tools in the toolbox? Yeah, I mean, you're totally right that it's, I do see the, um, I see that it's related to mindfulness. Um, Maybe not as many people understand it today because I think some people still see mindfulness as this idea of like almost like denying your feelings or suppressing your feelings but actually yeah it's much closer to that idea that you're just accepting the feelings without judgment and like you said that's really important with our um the way we deal with stress and anxiety is that um you know if you're coming up for like a big exam or you're giving um a talk to the public um or you're up for a job interview you're going to feel anxious and you can't really do anything about that. Actually trying to suppress the anxiety or or ignore it is only going to backfire really. Um, But what we can realize is that there's actually an evolutionary reason for feeling anxiety and that everyone feels anxiety. And that actually is adaptive because the physiological changes that we don't like feeling are actually beneficial. So the beating of the heart um, is pumping oxygenated blood to your brain and the levels of cortisol, you know, that spike in cortisol, well, that's actually, you know, helping to sharpen your thinking and to make you make sure that you're on the ball. Um, that was really important, you know, if we're dealing with predators in the wild or even if we were on a, we were on a hunt in the wild, you know, any time that you needed to be kind of charged up, you needed to have an anxiety response. Um, and what's amazing is that actually just reminding people of that fact can be really helpful and then promoting a more beneficial um, response to their anxiety. So it doesn't change the feelings themselves, um, although it can help them to feel maybe less threatening. But what it does do then is it helps to improve the performance 
and also helps the recovery afterwards. So people who've been able to reinterpret anxiety in this more positive way um, tend to just find it easier to feel relaxed afterwards. You know, the, the body can return to all of its other kinds of um, processes like digestion, and, you know, what things that are important for keeping us alive. So you, the, the thinking is that you're less likely to suffer from the long-term negative effects of stress as well if you can reframe your anxieties in this way. Um, and I think I think that's just really important for us to remember is that, you know, much like the participants in the um, immunotherapy trial weren't denying the those symptoms, they were just reinterpreting them. We're just doing the same, but in a much more common everyday situation here, we're just reinterpreting the anxiety rather than changing it. Um, and I found it very interesting that this ex these expectation effects uh, can also be contagious, so in communities. So one important component that makes people amenable to such, let's say, expectation effect bugs are uh, it's it's empathy, right? So um, and this is relying on our mirror neurons. Yeah, that's it. So you know, there's been a bit of controversy amongst scientists about how important mirror neurons are. Um, maybe they were overhyped and oversold as this kind of the one thing that gives us empathy. And actually, scientists are realizing that there's probably lots of different mechanisms in the brain that help us to have empathy. But mirror neurons or the mirror neuron system is one one method. And uh, we have these neurons that just, you know, if we see an action or we see an emotion, that they tend to mimic uh, the same activity themselves so that we on a uh, kind of very basic level start to feel that that feeling for ourselves and what you find is actually with things like nocebo responses you know if people um, are suffering from uh, pain you know because of some expectation and then someone sees them suffering from it then that person is also likely to suffer from the same expectation effect and you know it can pass through a population in this way um, there's loads of examples throughout history of, you know, mass psychogenic illness that seems to have been passed on in this way. Um, my favourite, uh, the one that I think is most revealing, is this uh, outbreak in the um, 2000s in Portugal of teens who'd been watching this soap opera, um, where there was this mysterious illness amongst the characters. Um, and, you know, so, some of these teens seem to have been empathetic enough that they believed that they had caught this mystery virus themselves. Um, and then their classmates saw them getting ill and believed that something, you know, was going on. Their mirror neurons were firing and then they got ill. They were fainting. They were um, vomiting. You know, they were feeling ill. Had to go to hospital because, like, the authorities were so worried that, you know, there was, really was some kind of disease that was passing only amongst teens. Um, you know, it turns out, you know, they did all these medical tests and there wasn't a biological agent behind them. It was purely through expectation that them was uh, passing from person to person. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. 
Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So I find this also very much related to um, uh, the topic that you discuss about food and how we um, how we perceive food. So we also seem to have these expectation effects, um, which are highly influenced by the messages and labeling of certain types of food, uh, as well as the whole experience of eating them. Again, we have here, let's say, a prediction that we have and the whole sensory ex- uh, experience of eating that uh, influence the whole, let's say, experience for us. Um, Can you tell a bit how we think of food can actually influence things like our digestion, nutrient uptake, and uh, even our mood? Yeah, it's so important because, um, so I think like, again, like uh, the traditional positive thinking literature would be very different from what the actual science tells us about the expectation effect. So, you know, if um, something like Rhonda Burns, The Secret, you might just imagine yourself being thin and you will miraculously lose weight. Um, that That's not what the expectation effect is really about. Um, what we're talking about here is how you interpret the food you're eating and what you expect that food to do to your body. Um, and this is especially important for people who are dieting because um, you might choose a food for dieting specifically or only because you think it has few calories. It might not be very appealing to you. You don't expect it to be satisfying, but you're picking it because it's low calories, so it will help you to lose weight. Um, the unfortunate thing with that expectation is that it, the, you're creating an expectation effect that's going to increase your appetite. Um, because you don't believe it's going to be satisfying, it's not so satisfying. That's probably true partly just through this kind of this subjective um, way that we interpret the body signals. So, you know, we do have sensors in our gut that can detect how much food we've eaten, but actually the data from those sensors isn't brilliant. Um, So, you know, when the brain's making sense of them, you know, like any sensory perception, the prediction machine is also using context and expectation to kind of read them and interpret them. And, you know, if you don't think you've eaten a lot, then it's going to interpret um, those feelings as being a lot more hungry than than if you feel like you've eaten a, a big meal. Uh, so that's one element. But actually, it seems that it can also change our hormonal response to the food as well. Um, so normally when we eat a big, satisfying meal, we see a reduction in the hormone ghrelin, the hunger hormone. Um, so high levels of ghrelin trigger um, appetite and trigger hunger low level, when it's low, you feel full and satisfied. Um, What the research shows is that if people have an expectation of having eaten a lot, then they will see that drop in ghrelin um, that will stop them from feeling hungry. But if they have this uh, sense of scarcity, if they've been told that what they're eating is this kind of low fat, low calorie health food, then they don't see that drop in ghrelin. They still have 
high levels of the hunger hormone that then are going to um, trigger uh, a huge appetite later on. So yeah, it's happening at all levels of um, of the way the body and brain are responding to food. And the the upshot is that if you're only focusing on this small number numbers of calories that you're eating, you're going to have much bigger um, uh, cravings, much worse cravings later on. You're going to find it much harder. Uh, not to snack than if you had the expectation and the belief that you've actually eaten a really satisfying meal. I find it quite shocking. I couldn't even believe it that, yeah, okay, we all even cannot judge with uh, basically our basically sensory neurons, like the whole biochemical uh, system underlying that how much we have eaten or how satisfying a, a meal was. So this was really really shocking for me mm, I mean I think it's and you know I would have been a bit skeptical of that but you know as you know it's like um there have been these studies of the amnesic patients so people who can't remember what they've eaten and what you see is that they actually do show enormous appetites very soon after having eaten a really big meal because they don't have that memory of what they've eaten they don't have the expectations of feeling full and so they're, they're just not interpreting the body's internal signals correctly to reduce the hunger well just as we're moving to um, mind over body i want to also touch upon exercise so you you mentioned mind over muscle uh, to indicate the physical and biochemical effects of muscle activity and fatigue alone cannot ex explain why we hit the wall at some point during exercising. Uh, but rather there is this um, mental uh, component to it. I think anyone who tried something, um, you know, in endurance sports or kind of push themselves uh, more than they're comfortable with has experienced this um, positive or negative effects of the mindset when you actually set out to do this uh, difficult task. So I personally had this. Uh, what role does the mind play in, in our physical performance? Yeah, I mean, it's hugely important. And I think athletes, like you say, have recognized this. Coaches have recognized this. Scientists have been a bit slower in kind of really understanding and measuring that effect. But it's so evident in so many different studies. Um, you know, especially when uh, researchers have looked at the potential role of placebos in athletic performance, it can be really striking. So with people doing weightlifting, if uh, you tell them that they've had a kind of caffeine supplement. Um, so I didn't know this, but caffeine is meant to, you know, widely believed to improve um, your performance in weightlifting. Um, and even when they gave these weightlifters decaf, um, they saw like a, a really notable increase in the amount that they could lift. Um, it's quite remarkable. Um, and actually, if they took caffeine, but it's, uh, were told it was decaf, then they didn't see the benefit that they should. So, you know, we can't say that the whole effect of caffeine is purely placebo, but it certainly is a large part of that on sports performance. Um, it's even true for some um uh, banned substances in sport that actually like a lot of the benefits do seem to come from placebo effects um so yeah i think it's really difficult now to kind of deny that that's the case um what i find more interesting is not just looking at kind of elite sport but also looking at how this might affect like everyday kind of workouts you know especially people who you know haven't really enjoyed exercise and find it really difficult to keep going um and the research there shows that our appraisals of our fitness really are changing our endurance in quite profound ways. So um, researchers at Stanford University gave people a genetic test, um, but provided them with sham results um, that told them whether or not they had like a certain gene variant that would be good or bad for um, endurance exercise. Um, and what they found was that actually just being told that 
information uh, not only affected the endurance, but also shaped some of the physiological parameters that they were measuring. So things like the exchange of oxygen and carbon dioxide within the lungs, um, that was a lot more efficient if people believed that they were carrying this beneficial gene. And actually, it was more important than the gene itself for that particular measure. Um, and I can just see how in everyday life this plays out. You know, if you had bad experiences of sports at schools and then you you go to the gym, you know, I've had this myself, um, you kind of want to do it because you know it's good for you, but your expectations are kind of putting the brakes on your performance. It's making it harder and more uncomfortable than you really felt. Um, and you can just shift your mindset. So you don't have to tell yourself you're going to be some kind of Olympic athlete. You know, that's as stupid as believing or as damaging as believing that positive expectations are going to cure a terminal illness. You know, it's not going to work and it's only going to lead to disappointment and stress. But you can actually just question whether your beliefs, your assumptions about your poor fitness are really justified. And you can try to remind yourself that whatever baseline you're at, that if you do keep on with your workouts, you know, day by day, you can make incremental improvements that over time can be quite profound. And that shift in mindset, focusing on that tra uh, trajectory and your potential for growth, uh, that can be quite powerful, not just in motivating people, but in actually making the workouts just more pleasurable and more productive. A similar um, strategy is used people who, let's say, aged well. So there's a whole chapter on, on aging. Basically, um, you're, you're saying, okay, if you believe that aging means that you should stop doing marathons, running Ironmans and, you know, be very slow, then this is what's going to happen. However, if you think that, okay, I'm retired, I'm fit enough, I'm just going to train for... Uh, for the next race, um, this is something that you can do if you if you basically orient yourself towards this goal and reframe the whole um, aging process. Yeah, that's exactly it. And you know, so I spoke to Paddy Jones, who's the world's oldest acrobatic um, salsa dancer. She was inspiring. I covered you know these um, ultra marathon runners who you know are in their eighties and nineties. It's like is really inspiring what some people have achieved. Um, and just more generally, you see that actually people's beliefs about aging, whether they see it as wholly negative and only associated with decline, or whether, you know, they accept that aging comes with some challenges, but they also um, see that actually aging can come with some benefits, you know, the wealth of experience that you've accumulated, you know, your vocabulary and general knowledge and decision making are actually at their peak when you reach your 70s and 80s. So, you know, there's some things to look forward to. Um, what you find is that actually that can uh, predict things like longevity by about seven and a half years. It can make a difference. Um, also, the risk of things like um, Alzheimer's disease depend on our beliefs about aging. Um, it sounds kind of magical, but like all expectation effects, the physiology, physiological and behavioral mechanisms are really well defined now. The scientists have really connected all the dots. Um, and, you know, part of it is motivation. You know, if you only associate aging with decline, you're just going to feel less inclined to uh, do workouts or to eat healthily, you know, to look after yourself. Um, so that's important. But also there's the kind of stress response, um, which comes back to what we were talking about earlier. That If you see yourself as being very vulnerable, then, you know, everyday challenges are going to appear much more dangerous and threatening. So the prediction machine is really preparing you for this kind of danger with an elevated 
dangerous stress response. So very high levels of cortisol. It's going to promote greater inflammation in case you get ill. And over time, that produces wear and tear on the body's organs um, that can then lead to illness. So it's actually, you know, even though it sounds incredible, um, the psychological and behavioral and physiological mechanisms, you know, are, are very well understood. And, you know, we're talking about small incremental changes that over time can really add up to produce these big differences in health and longevity. And you also mentioned that um, how aging is uh, displayed in, for example, media, how, how it's shown is also having quite a large effect on how people perceive how they should be aging, for example. Yeah, and I found this like incredibly depressing, actually, especially since researching this chapter to see just how negative portrayals of older people can be. Um, and also how, you know, even in everyday conversation, it's like we you know, rightly now, um, we reject things like homophobia, you know, racism, um, sexism, but ageism is still kind of accepted and just something that we, you know, think you can just laugh off. Um, but actually, you know, this research shows that over time, those uh, stereotypes become internalized, and then they're affecting people's health, and actually having a really profound effect on people's health over time. So I think that's really something that we need to attack as a culture. And to, to just, um, we need to become intolerant to ageism. Talking of stereotypes, um, I also found it very interesting that um, it, the expectation effects are not only influencing our self-perception, but also how others perceive us. And in, in one chapter, you uh, describe um, an example in education, for example, how teachers are perceiving students and how this affects their performance. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, this came, came from a study um, in the 1960s um, that has been quite criticised, but where the researchers found that if if they just randomly picked some students within a class and said they were going to, they were on the cusp of this inflection point in their intellectual trajectory and they were going to, uh, they were called bloomers because they were going to blossom with their uh, intellectual ability, that, you know, priming the teachers to believe that, um, then the teacher's beliefs and the way they communicated those beliefs to the pupils then changed the pupils' performance so that they did actually Im uh, improve over the year and performed quite remarkably compared to the children who weren't in this group, who hadn't been singled out. Um, you know, that was a small study, as a lot of studies from the 1960s were. Um, but it has been replicated now many times in many situations, many different kinds of schools. Um, and it, it really seems that often teachers' perceptions are just biased by societal prejudices. So against people of a certain uh, gender, race, you know, economic background. Um, and that then that is uh, changing how those children perform in the classroom. And those expectations are communicated often non-consciously through body language, the tone of voice, facial expression, you know, things like how often the teacher interacts with the child, whether they allow the child to have the time to explain their thoughts or whether they cut them off. You know, all of these things can uh, transmit the idea to the child that they're just, you know, not worth listening to, that they're, um, that they're not good learners, that reduces their self-efficacy, and then that in turn reduces their performance. Um, you know, so it's, I think like now, like one of the researchers told me, uh, Christine Ruby Davis said that it's really like just we can't question the fact that teacher expectations are important. But the big question is how we can actually prevent this from happening. 
and she's performed some excellent research that had um it was like a year-long study um where she'd like held workshops to try to teach teachers about the the potential effects of their expectations um they'd film the teachers in the classroom and then pointed out you know these are the ways that you might be communicating low expectations to these students and and what she found was that that did actually then helped to change the way the teachers were behaving and that in turn changed the uh, performance of the students. So it's quite optimistic that, you know, with a more awareness of this problem that we can actually try to treat it. And that's not going to, you know, that this, I'm not saying that this is like a, the only problem that students of certain backgrounds are going to face. Like there are huge structural problems too. But actually this is one potential way that we can help to improve the equality within the classroom. Um, but considering, I mean, it's really such a huge effect in the lives of those children. And I can imagine uh, in the same way in workplaces, in other contexts, how um, basically these effects um, influence uh, or let's say even deepen these social inequalities that are that are already there. So there is at least, for example, taking this um, as an example, uh, training people, making them question. Maybe they don't do it with bad intentions. They all, nobody says I'm a racist or, or a sexist person, but kind of seeing this um, and then reevaluating maybe, or let's say um, uh, uh, reframing also how they behave potentially is uh, could be a useful tool. Yeah, that's it. You know, it's one it's one useful tool that people can use. It's kind of helping to remove one potential barrier. It's not the single solution, but it is definitely one one thing that we should be focusing on. So um, you cover so many very different studies and we now also discussed food, exercise and in medical um, placebo and nocebo effects. So as a science journalist, what sort of gaps did you see in, in the research with regards to the expectation effect? Mm, yeah, I mean, like one of the frustrations almost of writing this kind of book is that it does make me want to conduct my own experiments on uh, different subjects. Um, yeah, I mean, so this is just one like personal interest that I have. But, uh, you know, coming from England, I think as a nation, we're really bad at learning foreign languages. And I feel like there's probably, you know, a cultural expectation effect going on here that we assume that it's just impossible for people to do or really difficult. And that only some people, some really talented people are capable of it, but they're in a tiny minority. And I don't think you see that in other countries. You know, I think most other European countries, um, people are just, you know, the general population is much better at learning uh, foreign languages. And so I'd love to do some studies or for someone to do some studies, just kind of looking into that and how we could change the mindset and whether that can actually improve people's performance. Because, you know, looking at all of these expectation effects and especially like um, in education, like I think it, it could be a really easy way of kind of getting more people to to kind of, yeah, to kind of appreciate and learn uh, different languages and to appreciate different cultures. I can add that uh, here in Switzerland, actually, there are three official languages and mm. most people speak at least two. Right, so, exactly. Right. It's the norm, actually, across the world. The majority yes. of people are bilingual, at least bilingual, you know, trilingual even. Yeah, so we in England are very much the minority. And I'm sure it's not something to do with the genetics of the population and much more to do with our kind of attitudes to language learning. Yeah. So... Um... At the end of the book, 
Um, you describe also some further strategies to cope with negative beliefs we have in dealing whatever challenge that we're experiencing and applying some of the techniques you've mentioned in the book. Maybe you can you highlight three of them. Maybe you can briefly tell us about it. Yeah, sure. So I'd say in general with the expectation effects, you know, I think like what this, the research shows is that actually just learning about the expectation effects can often be enough to shift your mindset and at least help to start you to question your assumptions. So with something like um, reinterpreting stress, you know, it really was, you know, in these interventions, what they were doing was just teaching people about the potential adaptive benefits of anxiety. Um, so we know that knowledge itself can be useful. Um, but also we know that sometimes it can be really difficult in the moment to change your expectations. And, you know, sometimes people will face frustrations. Um, so I, in the um, conclusion, I do identify these kind of three different strategies we can use to ease that process. Um, now, one of them is to just recognize the brain's um, potential for change. So learning about its neuroplasticity can be really important um, because I think a lot of readers might come with the assumption that if they've got into bad mental habits, they just can't break out of those. But actually, a lot of research shows, you know, that our mindsets are malleable, our minds are malleable, you know, we can do that. So that's just something to bear in mind and to remind yourself. Um, the second one is to practice self-compassion. And I think the danger with learning about the expectation effect is that if you face a frustration, your people are going to be too... Um, kind of they're going to be too harsh on themselves they're going to blame themselves they'll think that they somehow weren't applying the expectation effect rightly or that there's something inherently wrong with them and that's actually just really counterproductive that's not going to help you to kind of change your mental habits um so we we need to practice self-compassion and the research shows that actually just being kind to yourself and recognizing that often in situations you know there's lots of different contextual factors that might be influencing you so you don't have to always feel shame for a failure um i just think that's a, a great philosophy for life and the research shows that it does you know helps to re reduce stress and you know um, helps people to make positive change if they take that kind of attitude. And I think it's just something to bear in mind while you're applying the expectation effect. Um, thirdly, I think we should use self-distancing. Um, and this is just imagining that you're talking to a friend with the particular challenge that you're facing. Um, in general, like most people, are kinder to their friends than they would be to themselves. So they are naturally more compassionate to someone else than they would be to themselves. Um, and so I actually think that process can help you to question some of those negative assumptions naturally um, and it helps to make it feel more authentic. Um, so if I just, just give a couple of examples, you know, I think like if you're going to the gym and you're really struggling in a you know, on the treadmill. Um, like I know like uh, lots of people, like my boyfriend's like this, like he will tell himself if he's, you know, aching or breathless, he'll be like, he'll see that as a sign of his inherent lack of fitness. And he'll start saying, you know, I'm so kind of lazy, I'm not cut out for this, you know, all of that. Um, you know, that's going to create a negative expectation effect. But if he imagines that I'm in that position and I'm struggling on the treadmill, he, of course, he wouldn't say that to me. He would say, you know, keep going. And he would say, like, actually, you know, if you're struggling now, that's because you're doing your body good. And that it's a sign that you're actually improving, you know, it's a sign that you're building strength. Um, it's just much easier if you imagine 
someone else doing that. And so I think it, this is just a really useful tool. Similarly with aging, I think, you know, you might catastrophize um, if you, you're aging and you have like a one challenge that you found difficult, you might be very unkind to yourself and put all the blame on the fact that you're, you know, getting older. But simultaneously, if it was someone that you knew and loved, you would you would try to look for the other kind of contextual reasons for it. And you wouldn't just jump to that assumption. Um, so I think, you know, it's something that's a tool that can be very generally applied to help us to to question our assumptions, make sure they're not too negative, and to apply a positive expectation effect. So quite a powerful message to close. Be kind to yourself. And if you're struggling, imagine that's, you know, somebody you care about. So distance yourself from it and, you know, still then be kind uh, to that person dealing with, with that problem and then take that away for yourself. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Thanks a lot, David, for joining me today and uh, for this interesting book. Oh, yeah, it's been my pleasure. Thanks for the uh, wonderful questions.